Will you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. And we'll continue our series in 1 Peter. The title of the series is Living Right in a World Gone Wrong. And we want everybody to look at 1 Peter 4 with us. So these brothers have some Bibles, and as they make their way toward the back, if you need a Bible, get their attention. And it's marked at 1 Peter 4 so that you can follow along. In the couple of years prior to my father passing away when I was 11, he had experienced a series of episodes related to his heart. A few of those had him hospitalized for a day or two. So when he finally suffered a massive heart attack that took his life at the age of 48, it was not a huge surprise to anybody given that history. But I found out years later that it was even less of a surprise to my mom because she had been told by the doctor that with the weakened condition of my dad's heart, he would probably have about two years. And he turned out to be right. Now, I'm not sure why there was that sense of resignation that he had but a short time, whether it was just the state of cardiac care at that time and they couldn't do the kinds of things that could be done today. I don't even know whether my family had the means to get better care for him. But for whatever the reason, the doctor's prediction was accurate. And my mom knew all along what the doctor thought would happen. In hindsight, knowing that my mom was aware that my dad could die soon, it explains some of her behavior the last couple of years of his life. You see, my mom had never worked outside the home. And yet, that uh, last year of my dad's life, she started uh, looking at job opportunities. She didn't take a job at the Windout Hospital until after my dad passed, but she was looking into what was available before that. As well, up to that time, my mom did not have a driver's license. And so when we went to the grocery store, and she would take me and my younger brother to the grocery store, it was a a three-hour ordeal. My dad would take us. It took three hours. One of those hours, approximately, was spent in line as you tried to check out. In the days before scanners, it often took that long. And so my dad would drop us off at the supermarket, and then when we were done, we'd use the payphone, and then he would come and get us. And yet my mom got a driver's license that final year, after all of those years without one. And as an 11-year-old, I didn't know why all that was happening. The expectation that the end of her relationship was near altered her behavior in ways that were consistent with that fact. The fact that her life was going to be changed dramatically and could be at any time changed the way she viewed what was important and it reordered her priorities. A job and a driver's license were not important at one time, but now they became essential. And I tell you that for this reason, because the Bible constantly keeps before us the truth that our lives could be altered dramatically at any moment. But this change that the Bible speaks of, unlike the one that my family experienced, is changed for the better. When Jesus returns to receive his people and establish a new order of things in his kingdom. Because the Bible teaches that as Christians, we live in a world that's fallen and in rebellion against God. And as we saw last week together from verses 1 through 6 of 1 Peter 4, the world is sometimes hostile to the people of God. 
And so we need to be reminded that the current arrangement is temporary. And that fact should profoundly change the way we see our lives now. The way we see what's most important and what we're living for. No better than what we're living for, who it is we're living for. And so verse number 7 of 1 Peter 4 begins this way. The end of all things is near. When it says the end of all things is near, it's literally the end of all things is at hand. That is, there's nothing that needs to happen for the second coming to begin, and it could commence at any time. And that fact, Peter is then going to tell us, from verse 7 down to verse 11, that fact that the end is at hand, that it could begin at any time, that the Lord could return, that should shape then the way we think and the way we live. Let's ask the Lord to help us then as we look at this passage. Father, we thank you that you care for us enough to instruct us. Instruct us in ways that are relevant to us every moment of every day. We thank you for reminding us in your word of the truth that the present order of things will be reordered radically when Jesus returns. Lord, we say, as hearts have said now for for 2,000 years, we say, surely, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But help us in the meantime to order our lives and our priorities in light of the fact that things are going to change dramatically when Jesus comes, and he could do so at any time. Help us to consider these truths today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we've inserted, as we do each week, an outline in your program, and I call your attention to that. The first thing that this passage from verses 7 to 11 in 1 Peter 4 tells us is that we must maintain the right perspective, the right perspective. Again, it begins with the end of all things is near. The word that's translated end is a Greek word telos, which means goal. And so you could translate the goal of all things is at hand. From a biblical perspective, time was created and time will come to an end. Time was created and time, history, will come to an end and we will enjoy life with God forever in eternity. The Bible teaches history is moving minute by minute toward an appointed goal and that goal is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so the Bible's answer to the question, what is the world coming to, is this. What is the world coming to? An end. And an appointed end, an appointed goal, and then the the kingdom of Jesus, and then the eternal state. That's the Bible's perspective. That's the perspective that, that we should have. But it's not the view shared by many in our secular society. We've all heard the phrase, history repeats itself. We've probably said that. I've said that. I think it's true because of what George Santayana said. Those who fail to learn from the mistakes of history are destined to repeat them. And we humans have proved to be very slow learners. And so indeed, because of our foolishness and our stupidity, frankly, we repeat the same mistakes over and over again. So history does tend to repeat itself. But many think history not only repeats itself so that you see the same kinds of things happening over over and over, but they also think that that will continue in unending repetition. Unending being the key word. Now, I love the Disney movies, 
And my family has gone to Disney World three times, most recently this past August, and we always enjoy ourselves. But I really could do without some of the secular propaganda. You say, now, if you're going to attack Disney, is nothing sacred. But you know, when you go, for instance, to Animal Kingdom at Disney World, it's a ton of fun. And we'll go back again if we're given an opportunity to do so. But it's also a very long lesson in evolutionary biology. As you are constantly told that life on earth began millions of years ago. But you get to see the Lion King performed live, and that's worth the price of admission. And so that's cool. It's got songs that are peppy and inspiring and often false. I mean, the, the main song, the, the Circle of Life, says... From the day we arrive on the planet and blinking step into the sun. And there's more to see than it can ever be seen, more to do than can ever be done. You all just want to sing along, don't you? <laughs> there's far too much to take in here, more to find than can ever be found. But the sun rolling high through the sapphire sky keeps great and small on the endless round. It's the circle of life. And it moves us all through despair and hope, through faith and love, till we find our place on the path unwinding in the circle, the circle of life. And the Bible teaches very clearly, forgive the grammar, it ain't unending. It will end. It will change. Dramatically and radically. In the view of many, we are continually evolving, continually making progress, so that we'll reach a golden age in this age, in this life. So in the words of those great theologians, for those of you who are old like me, the fifth dimension, we're in the dawning of the age of Aquarius. But the Bible teaches no unending circle. There is no age of Aquarius, but rather this age and this world will end and be transformed. And so time is literally temporary, temporal. It means that there's an end to the current arrangement, and that includes the trials and the suffering that we face, which is much of the theme of the book of First Peter. The end of all things is near, and that should profoundly alter the way, then, friends, that we look at life now. So how should it alter our perspective so that we have the right perspective? It should cause us to remember that the things that matter most are not things. It should cause us to recall that the only things that matter are the things that are not only matter, that are not only material. One of the things that will end, thanks be to God, is your suffering and your trials. The end is at hand, the end is near. And we need to locate then our meaning in things that cannot be touched by suffering and death. And that means locating our answers to the important questions in things that suffering cannot destroy. The truth is we can, most of us, all of us in fact, can do anything for a temporary period of time. But we are limited beings. We have physical and spiritual limitations. We cannot endure indefinitely. The good news is our Lord God knows that. He knows what our limitations are, and that's why he reminds us throughout Scripture, the end is at hand. It will not go on this way forever. 
You can endure while I have sovereignly placed you to endure, but it will end. The end is at hand. So the Bible tells us, for instance, in Psalm 103, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, and he remembers that we are dust. The Lord knows us. He made us. He knows what we can endure and what we cannot endure. So much so that Jesus said in Matthew 24, in speaking of a time that will come in in the future, and just before what I'm going to quote here, Jesus says that this time is a time that's unparalleled in human history, a time of difficulty. And he says, if those days are not cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. You see what he's saying there? I know you can only endure so long. And I shorten those days for the benefit of my people. And so God says famously in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, God is faithful. He will not let you be tested beyond what you can bear. So remember, friends, the end of all things is at hand. It will not go on forever. This world will not go on forever. Your suffering and your trial will not go on forever. And in the middle of verse 7 then, because of that, this is what Peter says, the end of all things is near, therefore. And then he goes on through verse 11 to tell us, this is how you should live, therefore, because the end of all things is near. You should have the right perspective. And with that perspective, here's how you should live. So we must have the right perspective. And I say secondly in your outline. We must offer the right petitions. Have the right perspective, and then because of that right perspective, we offer the right petitions. Verse 7 says, Therefore be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. You know, knowing that the end is near will, as I've said, alter behavior. It focuses the mind on what's important, reorders priorities, as it did, as it did with my mom. Sometimes, though, it will alter behavior in a way that someone says, well, then I'll just stop trying. I mean, if the, if the end is coming, then I'll just wait it out and not be active in the things that I'm supposed to do. You see that in athletic contests. You know, if a team's getting smoked at the end of the game, the end is near, what's the use? And so they just play out the last five minutes or, or so. I remember when I was a kid playing hockey, and we'd take a trip every year up to Canada. I always hated it because the Canadians knew how to play hockey. And we always got killed. We always got smoked. And I remember toward the end of the game when you know, they've scored their eighth goal, and we go to line up at the center, and we've got two that you just want to throw in the towel and just stop playing as hard as you can. And that's what, that's what some people did in light of the fact that the Lord's coming was near. In fact, the New Testament speaks to that. There were some people who said, well, then I'm not going to work. I'm not going to carry out my responsibilities. Jesus could come at any time, and I'm just biding my time until he does that. And the Bible warns of that. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, here's what it says. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies, he goes on to say. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. 
So in light of the end, the answer from Scripture is not then to passively just wait it out, but all the more be active in carrying out what the Lord has instructed us to do. And so we offer then sober, alert petitions when we, when we pray. Now notice that verse 7 says, Therefore be alert of sober mind with this proper perspective, then think about things the right way, contra what these Thessalonian Christians were doing. And then pray accordingly. Now when it says so that you may pray, it's not saying so that you can mouth words to God. Of course you, you have the ability to pray, but it's so that you may pray rightly. So what kind of petitions in light of the fact that the end is near? And therefore, we should be about our Father's business while it is still day. What kind of petitions would a, a sober mind, an alert mind, bring to God in light of that? Well, we would pray for things like success in the mission that God has assigned to us. Lord, we know it could end anytime. We ask you to grant us success in the endeavors that we are carrying out for your glory today and this week. We would pray for things like diminishing affection for the world. Lord, remove me, remove us from affection toward the world in light of your soon coming, any time coming. We would pray for things like diligence in the little time that we have left, for maintaining a proper perspective on the relatively short time that we have in this life. And so we must have the right perspective that the end is near, that the Lord could come at any time. That should reshape the way we pray offering right petitions. But then Peter goes on to say, thirdly, I say in your outline, that should cause us, this end, with the end in mind, to pursue the right priorities. Pursue the right priorities. Verse 8, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. And then goes on to talk about, in verses 9, 10, and 11, as we're going to see, how our relationship should be ordered, prioritized, in light of the fact that the end is, is near. Now, interestingly, verse 8 has the same word that's translated all things in verse 7. Verse 7 says, the end of all things is near. And then verse 8 starts out this way, above all, and the same word, above all things. So the end of all things is near then above all that stuff, above all things, now here's what you should prioritize. Here's what you should concentrate on. And he says, love each other deeply. All things are coming to an end, so above all things, love. And he gives us three areas where that love should be demonstrated in light of the fact that all things are ending. The first one I say in your outline is this. We're to love others more than ourself. Love others more than yourself. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, that is an allusion to a verse in the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Proverbs 10.12. It says, love covers over all wrongs. And so when I say here that this verse, verse 8, when it says... Love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. And I say it means love others more than yourself. Here's, here's what it's getting at and what I'm saying. 
We need to, as you've heard me say from time to time, love people more than we need them. And that includes loving people more than we need to be approved by them and more than we need to be proved right to them. You see, the reason we argue the way we do and we've got to get the last word and we can't let it go is because we need the approval of people. We need to be proved right in front of people more than we love them. That's why the Bible tells us love covers over wrongs. Love covers a multitude of sins. And so we are being called away from the temporary gratification of being known to be right in our relationships and in the conflicts that inevitably come in those relationships. You may be right. I may be right. But do we have to be known as such? Do we have to be known as such to the one with whom we're having the conflict? Do we have to make it known that I'm right and this person is wrong and let that be known to others? And yet we all know that we have gone on campaigns and we have seen other people go on those very kinds of campaigns. I have to be right, you need to know I'm right, and other people need to know that you know I'm right. But love covers over a multitude of sins. The long view, the fact that the Lord is coming, what matters most is our relationships in eternity. The long view means I can sacrifice short-term satisfaction for the long-term benefit of others and myself and even God. You say the benefit of God. Really? God benefits from what I do? Listen, God is about one thing, His glory. We're going to see at the end of verse 11 that all of this is about God's glory. And when we display the glory of God in the way we interact with one another, God benefits in that His glory is reflected back to Him. So the long view means I can sacrifice that short-term satisfaction for the long-term benefit of others, myself and God. And if what the other person is doing that irritates me or they're even wrong about is only harming me, maybe it's a fleeting thing, maybe it's something that will pass with maturity, then I can let it go. Now, I do want to add this. If it is something that they are doing or saying that is harming others and maybe a habit even that's harming themselves, then you may need to intervene. Love may require that you intervene on their behalf. But please note the difference. It's not because I'm ticked at you. (laughs) It's because you're doing or saying something that is harmful to you and to others. This phrase, covering sins, is used in another passage in your Bible, James chapter 5. And there it says this, If one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will cover over a multitude of sins. You see that? So love covers over a multitude of sins. And sometimes that love, doing what's in the best interest of another, means overlooking it. Because I have the long view. I don't have to be proven right. But sometimes it means because you may be harming yourself or you may be harming others that I need to lovingly confront you with that, to turn you from that error and thereby cover over a multitude of sins. Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, we're told to be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. 
So when Peter tells us, above all things, all things are passing away, above all things, love each other deeply. He is saying, as the Scripture tells us over and over again, place the interests of others above, above your own. Honor one another above yourselves, Paul said in Romans chapter 10. The end of all things is, is near, is at hand. It means the end even of difficult relationships will come to an end one day. And so you can endure and should use that for the benefit of those that God has placed in relationship with you. So we must pursue the right priorities, and that means loving others more than yourself. Secondly, I say, it means love others more than your stuff. Verse 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Love others more than yourself. And now verse 9, love others more than your stuff. What's that got to do with verse 9? Offer hospitality to one another without, without grumbling. Well, this command to be hospitable in your New Testaments found frequently because it was very important in especially the first century church is you had itinerant preachers who were going around from city to city giving the gospel and they needed places to stay. So they needed Christians to be willing to open their homes to be willing to use what God had given them for the advance of God's mission in bringing these preachers in and allowing them to lodge there. The Bible is telling us that the end of your stuff is coming near. So you can use the stuff for the things that will not end. The end of your stuff is coming. So use the stuff for the things that that won't end. Yes, in Greek, the word is, is stuff. You know, in, 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 in wealthy, materialistic, American dream, USA, it's very hard for us to receive this message, but it is a message from God Almighty that you need to have a diminishing view of the value of your stuff. We can't get our minds around in our culture a passage like the writer of Hebrews gave in Hebrews chapter 10 where he said, Remember those days after you had received the light when you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. You think about how much time and effort and thought and worry we put into our stuff. And how many of us could say we could joyfully accept the confiscation if it was for the advance of the cause of Jesus? And yet these early Christians did. And it's really, guys and gals, a great deal when you think about it. To use things that, are, that will not last anyway for benefits that will last for eternity. That's really quite a great exchange when you think about it. And that's why Jim Elliott, you know, the martyred missionary in Ecuador, many of you are familiar with him and his wife Elizabeth Elliott, who said that he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. And that's what the Bible is calling us to. The end of all things is near. 
So reprioritize. Have the right priorities. Love others more than yourself. Love others more than your stuff. (laughs) So what does that look like? Well, at minimum, it looks like being willing to use your stuff, like use your house to have people over. (sighs) People. (laughs) Over. Dirty shoes. What if they have kids? Holy cow. You know, I mentioned it. We used to, when I was a kid playing hockey, we'd go to Canada and we'd get killed. The good news is we would always go to Columbus, Ohio to play hockey as well. And we would always kill them. I always enjoyed that. <clears throat> and you would always stay overnight with the player on the other team that had your, your jersey number. So I stayed at this kid's house. And I remember walking into the house and into their very nice house compared to where I came from. And as we walked in, and to the right was their living room and the furniture in there. And nobody went in there. Now, if you have this, I don't know it. I haven't seen it, so I mean no personal offense. But it had couches and love seats that were wrapped in plastic. So they had kind of a museum to the right. (laughs) And then places you're supposed to live. You know, dear friends, that house, my house is not my house. It's Jesus' house. And your stuff is not your stuff. It's His. So we need to reorder our thinking in light of the fact that the end of all things is near, including those things. So that now, we love other people more than our stuff. And we use the stuff for those things that will not end. And then verses 10 and 11 are telling us, so, you know, there's a practical application here, right? Have people over. We've got a thing called community groups that meet in homes on Sunday evenings. And if you would like to volunteer or get more information about opening up your home, that is Jesus' home that he's lent to you for the purpose of carrying on the mission, then let the folks at the Information Center know about that. And then thirdly, I say in your outline, Love others more than yourself. Love others more than your stuff. Love others more than your skills. Because verse 10 says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So that verse is saying to us that our abilities, our skills, our gifts are something that have indeed been given. In fact, the word that's translated gift in verse 10 is charisma. And so we get charismatic, gifted. But it's related to the word in your New Testament for grace, charis. And so these are called charismata, that is, grace gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 in your Bible. And at the end of verse number 10, it says we're administering God's grace in its various forms. So the fact that you and I have particular abilities, particular giftings, is a gift to us from God. And now verse 10 is telling us it's a gift that's to be used for the purposes of the one who gave it, because you're called a steward. You're someone who is to now manage what God has given for the purposes for which he gave it. And so this is something given by God, and it's something received 
Again, verse 10 says, each of one, one of you should use whatever gift you have received. God gave it. We then gratefully receive it. And we're going to see in verse 11 that, that Peter gives us two categories of giftings, of serving and of speaking. And he doesn't give the details as to all the different kinds of gifts and abilities there are. But there are four, three other lists of gifts in your New Testament. There is one in Romans chapter 12, and it lists a number of gifts. And then in, famously in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and then also in Ephesians chapter 4, and then this passage. Four passages that have lists. This one just has categories of, of gifts. Now, none of those lists, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, None of those were designed by God to be exhaustive lists of every gift that could possibly be given by God. How do I know this? Well, I know this because none of those lists are the same. They don't match. And none of the people who first received them, when the Romans received the book of Romans as a letter written to them, they didn't have the letter to the Ephesians or to the Corinthians. So they would have had an incomplete list, right? And then the Corinthians would have had an incomplete list. And the truth is, they were designed to be just representative lists. God gifts people. God prepares people with abilities to serve Him. And whatever He gives to you, you receive through grateful hands and then in turn use for the purposes of the one who gave it. So whatever that is, whatever your ability is, it came to you from the hand of of our gracious God. It's something given by God to be gratefully received and then used by each believer. How do I know each? Verse 10. Each of you should use. It implies that every believer has some ability to use in God's church in the lives of other believers. So just like the end of verse 10 here says, this administers God's grace in its various forms. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says this, To each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the, common, for the common good. And so it's given by God, received by each believer for the purpose of serving others. Verse 10 says, Use whatever gift you have to serve others. So these abilities, great or small, many or few, they are gifts from God to be used for His purpose. They are not merited. They are not things that we should congratulate ourselves for having. What do you have, Paul asked rhetorically, that you have not received? And the answer is nothing. It all came to you from God. They're not to enhance our self-esteem. This is one of the problems, and I'll just say this quickly, but one of the problems with our Pentecostal friends and what they believe. Many of you know I grew up Pentecostal. And so I say this with, with great affection in my heart for many dear friends that I still have and enjoy and love and expect to be with in heaven when we all get straightened out about our doctrinal aberrations. But, but this is one of theirs. I'm sure we have them as well. And once they're pointed out, the Lord grants us the humility to, to be willing to change them. But this is one of the problems with Pentecostalism. It has a division between those who have and those who have not. Some have the fullness of the Spirit as evidence, they say, by speaking in tongues. And they've elevated a particular gift over, over other gifts. And yet Scripture goes out of its way to say the gifts are to be used for the common good, to serve others. That there are not the haves and the have-nots, that everybody has 
some manifestation of the Spirit, and all of that is to be used for the same purpose, to glorify God by advancing His mission in the use of those abilities. These abilities are given by God to be used in the lives of others, in particular in the mission of the church. And I want you to notice something at the end of verse 10, or the middle of verse 10. Use whatever gift you have to serve others. And that word serve is the word that's translated elsewhere, minister. Use whatever gift you have to minister to others. Here's what that means. If every person has been given gifting and abilities by God, to be used for serving, ministering, that means every person here who knows Jesus is a minister. So there's not just there's not the professional ministers and then everybody else. There's not the clergy and there's the laity. The Bible teaches every member ministry. And God has given you a ministry through the ability or abilities that he's, he's given you. And you are to be, end of verse 10, a steward of that. That is, a manager. A manager, one who has a responsibility before the owner. Now friends, to the extent that a growing church has a deficit of servants, it means that some are not using what God has given for the purpose He gave it. That is, some are not being faithful managers of the abilities that God has given. Now, you've heard me say many times over the years, I'm so thankful that God has allowed us to one-pound this theme since the beginning of our church so that when folks come in, they know that we believe in every, ministry, every member ministry because the Bible teaches that. And so when you become a member of our church, one of the first things we help you do is find out what abilities God has given you and then place you in ministry. And as a result of that, our church has been able to avoid the adage that 20% of the people do 80% of the Lord's work. You guys have heard that. So we have a very high percentage of all you all being involved in ministry. I thank the Lord for that. But I ask you, are you involved in using the abilities that God has given you for the purpose that he gave them? And if not, we want to help you do that. We want to help you find out how God has gifted you. Now, how do we do that? We have a ministry actually devoted to that. We call it community service. And what can you do to find that out? You know that connection card that is the rightmost panel of your program? There's checkboxes. One of those checkboxes is, I want to volunteer. You just check that box off. You put your name, contact information on it, turn it in at the information center. We will help you to identify how God has sovereignly given you abilities to carry out in His work. And I urge you, I urge you to do that. And then when all of this is done, when God has brought a people together who are each uniquely gifted, provided abilities by a sovereign God, when that's done, it shows the multifaceted character of God's grace. And that's why the end of verse 10 speaks of God's grace in its various forms. Some people say, I can't do anything. God contradicts that. Remember, God's grace takes on various shapes, and the good news is most of them do not involve public ministry. Notice verse 11. If anyone speaks, they should do it as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides. All abilities that God gives are for serving, all of them, including what I'm doing right now in, in speaking. But a few serve primarily by speaking, 
Most others serve by acts of service. And that's the good news because you know the stats say. (laughs) The one thing people dread more than death or next to death is standing up and having to talk in front of people. And so when we talk about serving, that strikes fear in people's hearts. They're going to ask me to teach a class or something like that. That's actually the minority of service opportunities, the vast minority. There are all sorts and, in fact, unlimited ways in which service can be carried out using the abilities and gifting that God has given you. And in verse 11, Peter is given giving us these two categories under which all of the gifts in the gift lists in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, they all fall under these two categories, speaking or serving. And so, friends, true love is not abstract. It's concrete. It's seen in what we do. And it first requires getting to know people for the purpose of loving them. Hear this, if you don't know people in God's church, now I'm going to say this directly, it's because you don't love them enough to do the hard work of getting to know them. You cannot sit back and say, but I don't know anybody. We're here to be known. We're going to dismiss in a few moments, and all God's people said, And we, we put a full half hour every week in our structure to help you get to know people. That's one of the reasons we do that. You get to know so that you can love people better. Last in your outline and quickly. We must live for the right purpose. We must live for the right purpose, end of verse 11, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Verse 11 says to use our gifts, whether speaking or serving, as if the words we speak and the strength with which we serve are from God. If anyone speaks, speaks as if, as if it's the very words of God. If you serve, do so with the strength that God provides. Why does it say that? Why be careful to connect what we say with what God says and what we do in our strength with the strength that God provides? Why does Peter say we have to do that? Here's why. Because the provider is the one who gets the credit. When we speak, if we speak truth, it is only because God is our God of truth. And He has given those words. If we serve, the strength that we have comes to us from God. It's all provided by God so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. In all of this then, friends in our love of others before ourselves, in our love of others before our stuff, in our love of others more than our skills, we bring glory to God. Remember, bringing glory to God is to display His character, what He is like. And when we do that, when we love others more than ourselves, we're showing that one of God's chief character qualities of love is displayed. When we love others more than our stuff, we are showing that God's worth and value is more important to us than material things, which are of relatively no value to us. When we use the gifts and abilities, the skills that God has provided to serve others for the purpose for which He intended, we show that God owns us and owns what He has given to us. And so we will use it for the purpose for which He has given it. I say in your take-home truth at the bottom of your outline, right living 
And remember the title of this series, Living Right in a World Gone Wrong? So Peter is telling us this is what right living looks like. But right living is radical living. What does that mean, radical living? Radical, the root. It gets to the heart. It gets to the foundation. And what Peter has dealt with here are our heart issues, root issues, that then affect how we go about our business with one another and carrying out God's mission in God's world. Right living is radical living. We're going to pray in just a moment. I wonder if there's anyone who came into this room, and as I'm going through this whole thing, you're going, man, that is all completely foreign to me. Use my stuff for other people? It's my stuff. (laughs) You know, sacrifice my time and my energies for the sake of other people? Put others, prefer others, honor others more than myself? It's completely foreign to me. If that's the case, if that's foreign to you, here's the deal. It's because you have not been radically transformed to the root from the heart. But that can happen in this moment right now. Thanks be to God. How does that happen? Well, you realize who you are. You realize that the reason you are dull to those things is because you are a sinner as am I, as are we all. But you recognize that Jesus is the remedy for that. Jesus lived the life that you should have lived, that I should have lived. He died the death that we deserved. He died to cover your sins so that they can be forgiven past, present, and future. And so you say, Lord, I'm going to repent. I want to follow you now. Go your way, not my way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow and pray. When we do that, you call out from your heart in your own words to God, Lord, I'm a sinner. I see it in my selfishness. I see it in a myriad of ways. Thank you for showing that to me. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for my sin. I give you my life. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to look into your word and to see there what you have provided for our instruction. Lord, thank you that you love us such that you provide what we need. And, oh, Lord, I dearly need, we dearly need to be reminded of reordering our priorities in light of the fact that the end is at hand. And all of the things that we cherish and we pursue are going to come to an end. Help us then to live in light of that. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would draw some to yourself in this sacred moment. Move on their hearts so that they see their sin that has separated them from you, has given them a perspective that is not God's perspective and therefore not a true perspective. Things are distorted for them. I pray that you are enlightening their minds to that and calling them to the truth of the good news of the gospel. Move on their hearts. Draw them out of the world and to yourself and may they join us in glad praise of the God who made us and is remaking us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.